Welcome to the Canon Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Tim Emmett, the lead pastor at Canon, and I hope that this message will help you take your next step with Jesus as he leads us from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from the world as it is to the world as it will be. Thanks for joining us. The Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote a story, told a story about a king who fell in love with a, with a peasant with a girl he had seen in a village near his castle where he sat enthroned. Uh, He saw her passing through her village and was captivated and then kind of found reasons to pass through that village again to see her, to kind of linger, to hear her. And over time, uh, he found that he really did love her. The king's love for this peasant was a bit of a mystery. He didn't really know himself why he was so in love with her, and his counselors, his advisors, certainly were baffled why the king loved this peasant girl who lived in poverty in this village near his, near his castle. He wondered how he could possibly reveal his love to her, and his advisors informed him that, well, you could command her to marry you. As a subject of yours, she would have to compel. She would have to come to the castle and be wed to you as your queen. He was, after all, a powerful king, wrote Kierkegaard, and even foreign dignitaries sort of trembled in his presence. He was immensely powerful. It certainly lay within his right and within his power, within his reach to to command her to marry him. But the king said he could not command her to love him. He would never know if she actually loved him. As Kierkegaard wrote in the story, the human heart must be unlocked from within. And so the advisors put their heads together and they came up with another proposal. Well, you could bring, the, bring this peasant girl to the castle and shower her with gifts. You could close the gap between the two of you by elevating her. You could make her wealthy and her powerful. And certainly she would fall in love with you when you give her all of these things. The king thought about that and said, yes, but I would never know if she loved me for me or just for the things that I gave to her. Then the king himself had a different idea because he wanted both to reveal his love to her but also then hopefully receive love back from her. He took off his crown and his robes and left the castle and went to live in her village as a peasant. He lived with the people as one of the people in the hope that he'd get to know this girl with whom he had fallen in love. And that over time, as they interacted and he got to know her and the people with whom she lived, she would fall in love with him. Of course, Kierkegaard told that story as a parable of the gospel. It is especially a parable of Christmas, but it's also a parable for Transfiguration Sunday. We do believe with the incarnation, with the birth of Jesus, that the Son of God, God's own royal Son, came to us as one of us, dwelled with us, pitched his tent among us, as it says in the gospel according to John. Moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson wrote in his paraphrase of that verse from the Gospel of John. We believe that Jesus is with us, and he is God with us as one of us. No crown, no royal robes, with us as one of us in the muck and the mire, the hopes, the dreams, the fears, the brokenness of the world. God here in love, God here for love. 
on Transfiguration Sunday, we get a glimpse of the glory that he left behind. On Transfiguration Sunday, the reading from Luke, which we have heard, we get a glimpse of his glory. We get the glimpse, of course, in the face of Jesus. Luke tells us that when Peter, James, and John go up the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus is in prayer, his face is changed. Luke doesn't actually say that his face becomes white or dazzling, just that it's changed, literally becomes other. Somehow his appearance is changed in their presence, and they get to see it. It reminds me of places where Paul says things like, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the reflection, the image of the true God, the exact replica of his glory. Peter, James, and John on the mountain, everyone here and online joining them in the scriptures get to see that on the mountain, as he prays, Jesus' face is changed and then his clothes become dazzling white. They get a glimpse of the glory that has always been his, that has somehow been veiled. And then they see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, two of the greatest figures from the Old Testament. Sometimes Moses and Elijah are interpreted as representing the law and the prophets, but Moses himself was a prophet. Both Moses and Elijah met with God, encountered God on a mountain. Moses, toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, promises, relates a promise of God that God would raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people. And in the Old Testament, in the last book of our Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, God speaks and God promises a day, a day of judgment and salvation when God would set right and heal the whole world. And then he says, before that day comes, I'll send back to you Elijah. Somehow these two figures who met God, encountered God on a mountain, represent all of the promises of God. God's promise to do something wonderful to set the world free from sin and death, and they're on the mountain talking with Jesus. Simon, Peter, uh, James, and John are thunderstruck, overwhelmed. And of course, Peter makes the suggestion that, they, that he make three tabernacles, three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And when he makes that suggestion, a cloud envelops them, a cloud which represents the presence of God. And then the voice is heard, as I related to the children, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Why doesn't the voice say, get a look at him? Why doesn't the voice say, behold him? Why doesn't the voice say, look at him? It's startling to realize just the way the story is told, just the way it is framed, not only in Luke, but also Matthew and Mark, that the point of the story is the voice. 
The whole point of this story, which is all about seeing Jesus, is ultimately instead about hearing Jesus. Why doesn't the voice say, get a hold of my son? I mean, we're invited to see him with Peter, James, and John. We see him at least somewhat in this passage, and yet the passage itself puts the emphasis on hearing. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And I think it means a couple different things. It means initially, primarily, listen to him as he in the passage right before this one, as he in the passage that I preached on last week says this, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's right before this vision of Jesus in his glory on the mountain. It's eight days prior to it, just over a week. But those words are still lingering. The disciples, I'm sure, are still confused, baffled, objecting. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering. And now they see Jesus in His glory. And it's hard not to imagine that Peter, James, and John are thinking to themselves, now we're talking. This is what we meant when Peter said, you're the Messiah. This is what all of us were thinking when you asked, who do people say that I am? And Peter spoke up for all of us and said, you're the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the chosen one of God. This is what we had in mind. And yet having seen what they had in mind, they hear the voice of God, listen to him. And that means especially listen to him as he makes clear that the kingdom of God, the power of God to set right and heal the whole world has come and will come only through the cross. The suffering of the Son of Man, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his brutal beating, his execution is not a detour from his mission. It's not a setback. This is how the kingdom comes. Listen to him. Listen to him how the kingdom comes. Listen to him what it looks like when it comes. If we listen to Jesus, if we really pay attention to what he says about the kingdom he brings, we have to admit the kingdom of God is a really weird place. Up is down. Front is back. The weak are strong, the poor are blessed, the great are humbled, and the humble are great. The first are last, and the last are first. Children are welcome and called great. Sins are forgiven, the dead raised. And vengeance is never the rule of the day. We love our neighbors and also our enemies. And when we are struck, we turn the other cheek. The kingdom 
which Jesus brings through the cross is a very strange place. It's unlike the world as it is. Dramatically at odds with the world as it is. And if we listen to Jesus as he teaches the kingdom, if we watch Jesus as he lives the kingdom, we really have to conclude that either, the, either Jesus is just stark raving mad or he really is the Son of God, the Chosen One of God, whose cross is his glory. I mean, that's the real shock at the heart of this passage. It's not that his face was changed and his clothes glowed. It's that all of this ultimately is just leading to the cross. The kingdom revealed on the mountain comes to us through the cross and the empty tomb. Because God rules over a kingdom of love and love can't be commanded. It can't be coerced. And it can't be bought. Fifteen hundred years ago, the emperor of Rome built a tomb for his beloved sister. It's a small building designed in the shape of a cross with a vaulted ceiling covered uh, with mosaics of swirling stars in an indigo sky. The focal point of the mosaic ceiling is a depiction of Jesus, the good shepherd, surrounded by sheep in an emerald paradise. This mausoleum, known today as the Gala Placidia, still stands in Ravenna, Italy. It's been called the earliest and best preserved of all mosaic monuments, and critics have described it as artistically perfect. But visitors who come to uh, the Gala Placidia may be disappointed when they um, finally enter into this mausoleum. It is rather small, and there's not very much light. After all, it's not a church or a chapel. It's a mausoleum. There are just a few windows high up in the, in the domed ceiling. They don't let in a lot of light, and the place is always packed so that it's hard to see. But if you linger every once in a while, one of the visitors will notice a small metal box in the back of the mausoleum. And they'll place some quarters in there. And then suddenly, for just a few fleeting seconds, the lights will come on. And people gasp at the beauty and the splendor of Jesus the Good Shepherd on the deep blue ceiling above surrounded by sheep in a green field. How do we turn on the lights to get a glimpse of Jesus? 
Jesus, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd who came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, the good shepherd who leads us to green pastures and still waters, who restores, who refreshes our soul, our life. Jesus, who leads us on right paths. Jesus, who sets a table for us in the wilderness. Jesus, who leads us through every dark valley. Jesus, who pursues us with his goodness and his love. Jesus, who welcomes us to spend every day, dwell together with him in the temple of God, in the presence of God. In that mausoleum in Ravenna, Italy, it takes a coin to turn on the lights and reveal the glory. What does it take for us to see Jesus' glory? to get a glimpse of his glory. It's striking to me that this passage begins and ends with two practices, utterly ordinary and within everyone's reach. What is Jesus doing when his face is changed? He's praying. And what are the disciples called to do? What are we called to do? Listen to him. Scripture and prayer. Two disciplines that lie at the heart of the Lenten journey we will soon begin. Scripture and prayer are not duties we check off, although in this Lent we'll kind of do some checking. They are means of grace. They are ways for us to be with Jesus, dwell with Jesus. And from time to time, by his grace, he'll turn on the lights and we'll get a glimpse of something wonderful. We'll see his glory, which is his love. Not his power, though he has that. Not his wealth, though he's rich. It's his love that is his glory. The cross is his glory. And as we listen to him, he leads us down from the mountains into the valleys of the world to walk with us from and through the world as it is toward the world as it will be a kingdom of love. The invitation this morning, the invitation in the weeks ahead is for us to bow with Jesus, be in prayer with Jesus, and to listen to Jesus. Trusting that as we do, we will be given by God glimpses of his glory, encounters with his love, and we will be changed. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We hope that this message will help you have a great week by helping you walk in faith, hope, and love. Looking for more information about Canon? Check us out on the web at canonchurch.org or follow us on Facebook at Canon UMC and Instagram at Canon Church 2424.